Genesis 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim, in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, by you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God made you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. This is the word of God. In most cultures, there's a tradition that the firstborn child has certain privileges, certain expectations, certain benefits in terms of inheritance, things like that. That's not true everywhere, but certainly in the days of Jacob and Joseph, who we're reading about, that was the case. Um, so Joseph brings his two children, Manasseh the firstborn and Ephraim the secondborn, born to him in Egypt. And he brings him to his father, Jacob, for a blessing. 
And he's very careful and very intentional to make sure that he lines everything up right so Manasseh, Manasseh will get the blessing of the right hand, uh, the greater favor. And in this, this wonderful moment in so many ways, uh, something strange happens, which is that Jacob crosses his hands and then says the blessing. And it's hard to understand why he did it. We don't really know because the passage doesn't tell us that he had any particular intention to do it, but we know that it was troubling to Joseph. That's verses 17 to 18. It says, it displeased him. And then he, he offers instructions to correct his old and feeble father. But Jacob says, I, I know exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> and it becomes another installment in the Joseph story that reminds us, perhaps this way with a visual that life doesn't always go as you plan. Life does not go as you assume. Uh, sometimes things are surprising. Sometimes the surprise is welcome. Sometimes it's not. Joseph finds himself thinking, this is, not, this, this is not the plan. You're breaking the tradition. What's happening? And in the Joseph story, we've been looking at it as a church. You can read it. It starts in Genesis 37. We find again and again all sorts of things that shouldn't happen, all sorts of things that people don't want to happen, happen. And... Um, anytime it things that seems like things will get better, uh, there are times when they get worse. But eventually the story progresses where we see by the end of it God's hand in it. And it doesn't help us understand why everything that happened happened, but it helps us get the lesson that God, when God is present, God moves things forward. And so the, the Joseph story is, we're calling it uh, uh, the part of this redemptive story reflection we're having this year because all sorts of terrible things happen, but towards the end we see the wisdom, the kindness, the provision of God, not simply in this person, Joseph, or in his family, but what God is doing through the generations, and that's often what the Bible deals with. Not just an individual, he's that detail of that focus, but through the work in an individual, what God does over generations, because what God do does is usually big enough that no one person or one group of people or one generation can do it all. It's helpful for us during the period that we've just been in to be having that kind of reflection, that kind of reminder, because this, this last year and a half of COVID has reminded us of something most of us probably knew, but it made the experience slightly more real of at least two things. One is we don't know all that we need to know, and secondly, we can't control everything we want to control. And so this has been a year of debating uh, what are the best policies, what are the best practices, how much confidence do we have in science, politicians, these various things, lots of disagreement. Um, and then in order to control the, uh, the outbreak and the spread, there were controls imposed upon all of us, which meant that we were left without controls of our lives. Uh, how many people were planning on having last Christmas without whoever you normally spend it with? How many students were planning on spending the last year over Zoom? Um, you know, this last year was a reminder that um, things happen that we can't control and we can't understand and we can't bring to an end. The Joseph stories remind us that that actually is the nature of life. If you ever thought it was otherwise, <laughs> uh, COVID gives us a brief exposure to a deeper reality, which is there's so much that we don't know and so much that we can't control. And that could be overwhelming, terrifying, frustrating, discouraging. But if the Bible is true, as we believe it is, Actually, we could be sustained through it. And so, um, you know, sometimes uh, one of the ways we could learn is, is to speak to elderly people. 
What are your regrets? What do you wish you knew when you were a teenager or in your 20s? Because often, it's only after you've experienced something that you could look back and have an understanding. That's not always the case. Some people are stubborn and foolish, and they get to an old age, and they're stubborn and foolish, and some young people are unusually wise. But most people, even if they learn the hard way, by the end of their days, have something to offer. Jacob is there not to give a lesson, but to bless. But we find that Jacob has grown a lot from a young, feisty, difficult guy to somebody who now is, at the end of his days, passing on the blessing of the promise, the, the blessing that he took hold of and fought for, and now the blessing that he's giving because he wants his generations, the ancestors, his children, and their children to fulfill for their sake and for the honor of God who promised to bless the world through his descendants. And so um, what is it that, that Jacob has learned? <laughs> well, as he announces this blessing, he, he, he shares with us a view that there are at least two things that if you understand are part of the nature of God, a relationship with God that this is a very mature understanding, the kinds of things that get you through this world and all that you don't know and you don't control, and that is that God is a shepherd and that God is a redeemer. These are very Christian principles, even though uh, Jacob writes long before the coming of Jesus. And so uh, in verse 15, as Jacob is blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, he remembers God as his shepherd. Um, for many of us, the imagery of, sh uh, the imagery of shepherding is intuitive because Jesus talks about it a lot. I'm the good shepherd, and it makes sense. Uh, follow me, I will lead you along. But the implications of having a shepherd, that, that the metaphor for, it's one thing for Jesus to show us the greatness of his character and care and wisdom and protection by, by declaring himself a shepherd. It's another thing for us to get that we are sheep. Um, some of us resist that. Because being sheep implies that we are not safe, we're harmed to ourselves, we're a bit foolish. We will wander and get lost. We um, are in need of help. And we resist that, and because we resist that, the idea of, of the shepherd-sheep relationship strikes many as fulfilling the stereotype that religious people, they're not, they're not bold individuals, but they're conformists. Um, they don't think for themselves, but they do whatever they're told. Uh, they're particularly gullible. They just believe whatever they're told and follow along. Now, that, that criticism is certainly understandable, that nobody should want to be gullible or foolish or arbitrary. And it's certainly true within Christianity that many of us are <laughs> gullible, foolish, um, maybe not as bold as we should be. But, but it's actually not unique to Christianity. If you look at any social group, if you follow any charismatic leader, those who are gullible, will be part of that crowd. Um, those who uh, need help will be part of that crowd. And so, so um, those things are not unique to Christianity. And in fact, what's interesting about Jacob, at the end of his days saying God has been a shepherd, Jacob doesn't fit the stereotype of the good religious kid who just you know, went to his religious program and obeyed the rules and did what he was told. For Jacob, he's, he's the, the very opposite kind of personality, the kind of person that if you knew him as a young person, you'd think, get him out of the church before he ruins it for everyone. Uh, Jacob is a guy who took advantage of his brother Esau's weakness. His brother, the firstborn, Jacob, the secondborn, the brother had a birthright, but his brother was not wise and foolish, but impulsive. And Jacob exploits that moment to swindle him out of his birthright. Jacob, who did not yet have the commandment given by Moses, because Moses is later, but should have known that you honor your father, 
did not honor his father when his father was unable to see and to discern which son was before him. And so he disguised himself in order to deceive his own father. And then he had to flee. And so his mother, Rachel, uh, I'm sorry, Rebecca, whom he seemed to have quite loved, he doesn't get to see because he has to go far away because he's afraid his brother Esau will try to kill him. And so Jacob has a very hard life. Why is his life hard? Because God is unfair? (laughs) So much of the hardness of Jacob's life is because Jacob, um, he didn't play by the rules. He wasn't honorable, but he did what he should not do and he suffered the consequences for it. But here he is an heir to a promise to Abraham and to Isaac who, who seemed to have walked slightly more honorably. Neither of them were perfect. But Jacob, a very distinct person, but he receives this blessing And in all of his greedy wrestling for the inheritance of others, he also winds up wrestling with God. And through that, God shows favor to him and blesses him, even though he didn't deserve it. And so Jacob is a reminder that the call to follow God is not a call for the gullible and the foolish and the timid. It's sometimes the stubborn and the foolish who have said, I did do my own will. (laughs) I did give myself to my desires. And I'm finding that it's making me and my life worse. And so I don't want to follow my heart and mind. I don't want to follow the next guru. Who can I follow? And that's where the Bible presents um, God who sends Jesus to say, don't follow anyone. In fact, be very careful. But don't follow yourself. Don't be cynical. Don't be foolish. God does intend to lead us somewhere. And so in verses 2 and 3, Jacob uses this language, God Almighty. You know, that language of God's power, El Shaddai, the the powerful one. God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, this is uh, Bethlehem area, uh, Bethel, uh, in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So God appears to him in his power to bless him, though he didn't deserve it. But God talks about what he will do. I will make you fruitful. I will make you a company of people. I will give you the land. God is saying, I'm bringing you somewhere. What I promised to Abraham through through you and through your descendants over the generations, I'm forming a people. And so God alone knows what he intends to do and God alone has the power to do it. See, that's what we lack. We don't know all things and we don't have that agency to control everything. God says, this is what I will do. And over the generations we find he does it. And so um, Jacob here winds up taking Joseph's kids, Ephraim and Manasseh, for his own. Jacob lives by promise. Ephraim and Manasseh, it looks a bit like fulfillment for what most of us want, sort of the American dream or the other, uh, wherever you may have grown up, where you desire prosperity. Um, Ephraim and Manasseh had it, their second generation. They grew up in Egypt, so they would speak without an accent. They were one of the most powerful families. During the famine, they have the power and the provision. Jacob is an old man losing his sight who has a promise that's being realized just enough to know that he's not a fool, but he doesn't have this wealth and this honor and this glory. But he tells Joseph, these two boys of yours, Ephraim and Manasseh, um, they will take my name. God changed my name from Jacob, the swindler, and called me Israel, the one who contends with God, and there will be a people who contend with God. Ephraim and Manasseh will be called by my name. They will take on my identity. And there's a hint of this story here of God's shepherding provision 
that when you read of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons, Joseph is not named because Joseph was the one who was lost. He was the one who was sold off to slavery, never to be found again. But the story winds up not only as Joseph found, but the sons that he had uh, in Egypt. And so now Joseph is not named, but Ephraim and Manasseh are, because Levi, one of the tribes, <clears throat> uh, is God's inheritance. So of the 12 allotments, Joseph gets a double portion, the two half tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. So we find in God's shepherding, he, he leads Jacob to this moment that he can say, I lost Joseph, but now I have Ephraim and Manasseh, and they will take my name. And rather than saying, you'll have a better life in Egypt, I'll learn the ways of this kingdom, he says, you better hope that there's a better king than Pharaoh. And that's the one who appeared to me. And so uh, God will shepherd him. Uh, that's verse uh, 5 when he says that these two sons are mine um, as Reuben and Simeon. Um, so then, as we, as we read along, um, we find that, you know, maybe if you read this and thought, if I was there, would I want to give up my Egyptian identity to join with this family that is a promise there'll be a nation? But here's a question for you. What's the name of this particular pharaoh? Pharaoh is a title. See, we don't know. The most important influential person is remembered because of his relationship to this family. But we don't know who he is, but we are in 2021 talking about Ephraim and Manasseh. It would have seemed foolish at the time to say, I won't identify with the big and the powerful here in order to hold to the promise of the greater and more powerful God. But Jacob was not a fool. He was not gullible. And yet, Jacob is not here to say, look, I trusted God and my life was amazing. And if your kids trust God, their lives will be amazing as well. What he's saying is, there's a limit to what Pharaoh and Egypt could give them. God is going to give them something so much greater that it will take hundreds and thousands of years to, to meet its realization. And so you look at Jacob's life, and yes, he suffered a lot. When he had to flee from Esau, it was because he did it because he deserved it. Why did his wife Rachel die? We don't know. We don't know that he deserved that. And it's interesting how that comes up in verses 7. He's telling the story, and he says, to my sorrow, Rachel died. Now, maybe it's natural. Rachel is Joseph's mother. It would be natural she'd be on his mind. But study the passage and try to make sense of what's the, what's the significance of him naming Rachel there. It's not clear. But this is a human story. Whether or not the significance is clear, it's significant to Jacob. Jacob's plan A was to marry Rachel, who was beautiful, whom he wanted to be with. And something got crossed. Laban, the father-in-law, sent in Leah, and he wound up with her. And it caused a mess of many ways. Um, but if you read the next chapter, the blessing that goes to the sons, Joseph gets a blessing of a double portion. But if you read carefully, it's going to be one of the sons of Leah, of the tribe of Judah, that God's promise goes through God's plan is not what Jacob intended. And so here he says, to my sorrow, Rachel died. And he doesn't say, but look, God replaced her, and isn't everything better? He has no understanding, perhaps, of why this happened. It's just, it's a thing that happened, and Jacob had to, to find himself saying, I don't know why this happened, but I know that I need to draw closer to God. But on the other hand, in verse 11, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. So that's the nature of following God. Things happen that he can't explain. Why did Rachel die giving birth to Benjamin? I just want to marry her and have children with her. And in the act of childbearing, Rachel dies. Why? We don't know. 
Joseph, uh, Jacob would have spent many years wondering why was Joseph killed by an animal? We don't know. But now he finds himself saying, Lord, not only did you bring my son back, but you, you brought grandchildren. You, I lost one son and you bring back two. And there's something here where, where, where Jacob is able to look out at these children and, and, and as an encouragement say, if you trust God, if you follow God, if you honor God, he will lead you. And you will make mistakes and he will try to warn you and he will protect you, but sometimes you'll bear the consequences of them. And sometimes he'll lead you through places you would not go, but he'll lead you through. And the blessing will be taken and passed on, and that's what he has. And so we find in verse 15, this is the way Jacob puts it. He says, the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Keep in mind, God might have chimed in here and said, but Jacob, you didn't always follow. But Jacob would say, but even when I didn't, God was still my shepherd. Even when I wandered, God sought after me and he brought me back. And there's a subtle implication in the language here. I don't know if it's what Jacob intended, but, but the God before whom Abraham and Isaac walked, they walked before God. It was, it's arguable, did Jacob walk before God? But he says, God who has been my shepherd. What Jacob is learning in his old age is, my fathers walked before God but I wandered, and yet God went before me. And it's that lesson that he learned, that life is hard. And if you live a good life, it will go better than if you live a bad life. But life in this world, who could control it? Who could understand that sometimes things get mixed up? But what Jacob says is, but God has led me all of my days. And that's something for us to notice. Uh, I'm learning a, a, a modified lesson of this. I have a dog, I'm now a dog owner. And my dog, I, I have to lead the dog so it doesn't go into traffic, so it doesn't run away. My dog, when you take it out for the purpose of getting exercise, likes to sit down and eat sticks. Seems like a fine thing to do. You want to chew on a stick, uh, you know, you work on your teeth, whatever the case is. But it's not just chewing on the stick. I have no problem with chewing on the stick. He chews the stick to pieces and then swallows it. Now, there's a part of me thinks, that's what you want to do, that's what you do. But the dog doesn't understand. Having swallowed these sticks, uh, there could be minor digestive difficulties, but there could also be some major ones that if I was willing to let the dog bear the consequences, the veterinarian bill for the major possibilities uh, touches me where I'm not compassionate enough to say I have a responsibility to make sure this dog does not eat the stick, and so the dog gets angry when I take the sticks away. Our dog gets anxious if you leave. And what I want to do is to sit down and... What I say I want to do? I'll be honest, I do this, but I know it doesn't work. I sit down and I say, I'll be back in five minutes. I'm just going downstairs to dump garbage and I'll be right back. And all you know is there's now wood between me and you. It's, the door is so big, if it was a stick, I would sit and chew it and I wouldn't pay attention to you. Uh, but now I can't see you, where are you? Will you ever come back? And I try to talk to the dog and, and bring assurance, but the, we're trying to train the dog that when we leave, we come back, so don't get anxious. But you can't explain it, you can't, teach it in one lesson. And there's so much communication that can happen between a human being and a dog. Um, so much that I'm learning <clears throat> when the dog does things that I don't yet understand, uh, we're trying to learn, and there are things that the dog won't understand that I'm trying to teach. And by spending time together, we're, we're getting these rhythms, but there's always a limitation. Because at the end of the day, the dog communicates with barking and whining, and I communicate with whining and speaking. Um, 
to think that God Almighty, <laughs> that's what Jacob called him, God Almighty, to think that this powerful creator of the heavens and the earth who watches over us is able to do everything so that we understand it. So God speaks, God reveals through signs, God sends messengers, God accommodates. But for us to say at the end of the day, if God really is God, the fact that I, I might not understand what God is up to, the fact that God may wish that I would know something that I can't know, that God can't convey because I live in time and space and I have a finite mind and I'm confined to language and visual concepts. Um, however, God is distinct and unique, utterly unique from humanity. God still leads humanity. He cares for us. He protects us. And Jacob could say it's not simply that God is nice to those who are nice to him. God doesn't simply like the subservient and the submissive. God doesn't use those who are useful. But I received a promise because I was born the grandson of Abraham. But God was kind to Abraham and Isaac. And God will be kind to the future generations. And I had a hard life. I could explain some of it, but I can't explain some of it. But God was kind to me too. And it's that that we should learn, that if you don't have faith, who are you following? And if you do have faith, to learn that following God will always involve periods of not understanding, not being able to explain, but remembering God Almighty. And doing your best to keep your eyes on God, to be obedient, to be faithful, to follow through, but to orient your heart and mind so if you wander, you're always ready to turn back and trust that if God is watching over us, he will bring us through. And so, God is a shepherd. God is also a redeemer, and that's the second thing that Jacob notes here in verse 16. He has come to learn through his life, through the course of following God, that God doesn't simply get him somewhere but God gets him to a place of rest and blessing. In this case, he arrives in his last years in Egypt, prosperous during a famine. And for whatever comfort and gratitude he would have given thanks to God, Lord, you have helped me to finish my days with a reconciled family, eating during a hard period. Jacob still knew, but this is not the fulfillment of your promise. Your redemption is echoed in this moment but you promised so much, something so much bigger that it won't be fulfilled in my lifetime. But I'm passing it on to my 12 children, and I'm passing it on to their generations. And what he's passing on is God doesn't simply lead us, but God redeems. God restores, he heals. He takes so much of what was lost, and he gives it back, multiplying it. And so in verse 11, the idea of, of Jacob saying, I never thought I would see you, Joseph. Seeing him as like a resurrection from the dead. I thought you were dead. There's no miraculous explanation for it. There's a very reasonable explanation, but Jacob's experience is, I lived for years under a lie. I thought you were gone. Now not only has the truth been shown through God's kindness that I see you, but I see your offspring also. And so in verse 16, he speaks of the angel, the very presence of God. He says, the angel who has redeemed me from evil. And it's from his own evil, but it's from the evil of his covetous brothers. It's from the evil of the Egyptians who enslaved and imprisoned his son. Um, God has redeemed me from these things. And so he wants to pass on that blessing. Follow the good shepherd, the one who will redeem, the one who will lead you through. And he crosses his arms. And verse 10 tells us, now the eyes of Israel were dim. Um, so verse 14, crossing his hands... Jacob wants to correct him, but verse 19, I know, my son, 
There's something here that Jacob has learned over the course of his life that, that he could not have seen, but he learned through walking with God, through the provision of God. He learned that God is a redeemer, not because he closed his eyes and prayed for a new chariot and opened his eyes and the chariot was there, but because now as he's losing his eyesight, he could look back and remember that if you go back to the earlier chapters of Genesis, he sees Rachel and she's beautiful. His eyes are set upon her. And there's her sister. And what's the description of Leah? Her eyes are weak. We don't even know exactly what that means. Does she not see well? Was there something about the way her eyes appeared? We don't know. But perhaps in a different way now, Jacob's eyes are weak. And he realized that what he had set his heart on based on what he saw was not where God was going to fulfill his plan ultimately, although God blessed it. God, through Rachel, gave him Joseph and Benjamin. God restored what was lost. But there's something in the Bible about people who think they can see, finding out that God will teach them things that you can't simply see visually or articulate uh, with words. Jacob gets that lesson that now where he can't see, he knows exactly who's, who he's intending to bless. Joseph thinks he's old, he's senile, he's blind. And here the Redeemer is able to tell him, I was in this situation some years ago with my father Isaac, and I needed to dress with animal skins, so my father thought that I would, he would smell the smell of Esau. And now he has the opportunity to redeem this, to make this right, to be a, a father who will bless his sons, and yet there is that, that strange crossing. Once again, the, the plan doesn't go as you think it's going to go. And it's not because Jacob is blind, but it's because Jacob has now come to see God as the Redeemer, that he knows that just because you're born first doesn't mean you get the blessing and the privilege. Just because you're morally upright doesn't mean you're entitled to inheritance. But God is a God who often surprises us, and the surprise in the short term can be confusing. But Jacob has said, but if you walk with God, if you follow him, the surprise in the end will be that he will redeem. He will restore. Um, and so we have not the son of Ephraim, who is the one that God would ultimately bring his promise, although Ephraim is the is the one, if you follow the story through Joshua, who goes into the promised land, or Jeroboam, who winds up taking the northern kingdom. Uh, Ephraim is prominent, but it's through Judah, one of Leah's, not the first or the second born, um, that you see that Jacob's blessing and the trail that goes down until it's the great King David, until it's Jesus Christ. And once again in Jesus, we have the only begotten son. You could sort of say God's firstborn, but Paul uses different language. Adam is the first humanity, uh, but there's a second Adam. <laughs> and so there's something theologically deep going on between the humanity of Jesus coming after Adam, but the divinity of Jesus preceding all. The whole story of the scriptures come together in this one descendant who God would send as the shepherd and as the redeemer. And we find that Jesus' life is full of surprises. What happens when you lead a morally upright life, when you walk with God, when you're aware of his presence, when you do all the things that bring signs that God is with you? Well, the biblical answer is you receive the blessing of God. But the Christian story, of course, is that once again, God would show that he is going to be a God who will surprise us. And in the most surprising of ways, he's not just a shepherd that sends Jesus to lead us, but he's a redeemer who will cross things over. So what happens when you lead a good and upright and godly and honorable life? Well, according to the gospel, Jesus bears the curse of our sin and our crime and our foolishness. 
what happens when you haven't lived that righteous life or you've lived a self-righteous life. What we're told is when Jesus comes, um, God once again surprises us by putting the burden and the pain and the shame on him and offering the blessing and the favor that was promised to us, though we don't deserve it. And it's that message that says, why would you follow anyone else? This is what God gives the blessing, though you don't earn it, though you don't deserve it. You don't have the right to it. And we don't boast in all the things that we've done wrong, but we renounce them and say, but God, you are making things right. And so over the years, there's been so many theologians who have talked about this exchange from the first century on. I'm just going to read a quote from John Calvin in the 16th century. This is the wonderful exchange which out of his measureless benevolence he has made with us that by his descent to earth he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us. That by taking on our mortality he has conferred his immortality upon us. That by accepting weakness. He has strengthened us by his power that receiving our poverty unto himself he has transferred his wealth to us that taking the weight of our iniquity upon himself, which oppressed us, he has clothed us with his righteousness. And that's we're told this is the nature of the good shepherd, the one who cares for his sheep, who protects them, who lays down his life. He's a shepherd and he's a redeemer. The story leads to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, where we're told that once again, God does the surprising thing, but the surprise is in our favor, not in his. What is it that Jacob wants his children to know for this hard, confusing life that Jacob had with long periods where he would have said, God, where are you? God, why is this happening? God, how do I come back? He ends in verse 21 with an assurance. God will be with you. It says, but God will be with you. Regardless of what will happen, um, I'm passing on this blessing. And if God is with you, he will protect you. Does that mean the thing you fear won't happen? Maybe. God is kind and generous. But it means if it does, God is a redeemer. He will bring you through. He will be present. And sometimes, the more you find out how undeserving you are and how hopeless your situation is, God will show you an even greater depth of his kindness, that it never depended on you. And it's that assurance that we need in a time period like ours, but in any time period where you find yourself saying, I don't understand. Well, God has given you a mind. Try to understand. Do research. Ask, experiment, do all that you can to be faithful and responsible. But know there's a reality that you'll never understand because you're not God. But God understands. And therefore, if you're willing to walk with God and follow him and see the blessing of his being with you, then you could get through those periods. And sometimes you look back and say, now I understand. <laughs> what we're told is you may look back and say, I don't understand. But God is good. And that should not be taken for granted. So when, when Jacob has this blessing in verses 15 and 16, he's, he's a patriarch now. He's going to pass on the blessing. He doesn't say, I, Jacob, the great uh, figure who's a grandson to Abraham, I bless you. He comes with a spirit of humility where he speaks of the God who blessed him, the angel who redeemed him. He says, bless these boys. He's, he's playing the role of a bit of a mediator. I received your blessing, though I didn't deserve it, and I'm passing it on, though I probably don't have the right to do it. But it's not me, Jacob, blessing you, but it's, it's you, God, who blessed me, and I just want my family to have that. And that's the Christian calling. 
um, you know, we are called to help each other, to bless one another, to serve one another, but it's, it's always God's blessing, his initiative. He's the one who goes before. And he brings his goodness into our lives. And once we have that, what do we have to offer to the world? Well, look, use your wisdom and your skills and your gifts and your hard work and your talent. But what's really going to bring a blessing is what we can only receive by grace. And what we're told is God pours out his blessing. And if we take hold of it and don't let go, he will show us that he will redeem all things. But, but he will fulfill the promise to Abraham to extend that blessing through you into the world. And so even those of us who are weak, those of us late in the game with Christianity, those of us struggling and failing, the shepherd will go before us. And if we set our eyes on him, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, and we take hold of that blessing and not the wealth of Egypt or New York City or whatever it is that entices you, that you will receive a greater blessing, but you will also pass it on. And that's something that is a great privilege of being part of the community of faith. Are you part of the church, the church of Christ? It's an open invitation. God, the good shepherd, says, come, join my people. And if you wander, I'll, I'll go after you and bring you back. But the hope is to be part of a people who are a redeemed people, a shepherded people, a people with an inheritance. Uh, come, join with that. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we are here this morning as a people who may need a bit of humility. Be gentle with us. Maybe we're coming in very humbled, knowing our weakness. Would we thank you that in this gathering, the promise to Abraham um, passed on through Jacob, through Ephraim and Manasseh and Judah and Levi and the others, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, is still uh, gathering momentum with us. You are still inviting people in to lead uh, to a good place, to a place of rest, to an inheritance. And so, Lord, along the way, as we're wandering, as we're confused, as we're without hope, perhaps some of us, Lord, bring through the power of your Spirit hope into our lives. We pray for the renewing of minds. We pray for the eyes of faith to see as things truly are. Uh, we join especially with those in a season of darkness who are stumbling and wandering. Lord, bring them out. We join together with our brothers and sisters today saying we want to move forward with your care and protection. We want the fullness of all that's good in life. And Lord, we want to be patient while we're waiting for the ultimate realization of it. So as a church, bless us, but also bless our neighbors, bless our coworkers through us. May we go out into the world this week with faith and with humility. And may we trust and follow you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.